podcast is brought to you by the Specialty Produce Network. On the Front Burner puts two no-nonsense culinary professionals on air discussing tough industry topics, interviewing fascinating food personalities, and providing penetrating looks at the industry that we love. We don't always agree and often provide compelling personal insights from a unique combination of life experiences. You know, it's a lively give and take. It's by no means conventional. Elaine owns Sweet Cheeks Baking Company and is a winner of the Food Network's Cupcake Wars and Fabulous Cakes. A seasoned industry professional, she is a cake designer and a certified sommelier. Don is a chef, an award-winning journalist, and a culinary educator. Together we take a not-always-pretty, sometimes-funny, and always-entertaining look at the world of food and beverage. Well, hello. This is On the Front Burner. My name's Elaine Ardizzoni. I am the owner of Sweet Cheeks Baking Company here in San Diego, California. And I am here with Don Williamson. Hi. Welcome. I'm Don Williamson. I'm a chef educator. I'm the president of the Chef de Cuisine Association of San Diego Education Foundation. And we're just happy to be here on our first podcast with you. What are we talking about today, Elaine? Yeah, you know, we keep talking about all the challenges and craziness of openings and closings going on constantly with restaurants, food businesses, etc. And uh, we thought we'd kind of tap into some of the some of the issues some of us have and uh, what chefs go through and the crazy labor costs of California, etc. And when I think about that, I remember when I first met Elaine, I was uh, teaching for the community college district, teaching culinary, and was looking for different sites, different bakeries, different people that uh, were in the industry. And I heard about Sweet Cheeks. Uh, I came down and Elaine and her business partner at the time were working in 100 <laughs> square feet. They were renting out 100 square feet <laughs> and they were sharing an oven. And you know, it was hard to imagine from those kind of beginnings that now she's one of the top specialty bakeries in Southern California, has won all kind of awards and TV stuff, and it just came from that. So things can be pretty good. You're I very think kind. That, You're very kind. <laughs> it I wasn't think, without a lot of grit. <laughs> I understand. But still in all, it happened, and it seems to be happening. So our question today is, food industry, is it rolling in dough or no? And uh, yes. And one of the things that we think about with that is that people say that the industry is, 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 is growing, that um, millennials are eating out. And you've got baby boomers who don't want to cook at home anymore, and they're eating out, and things are going. In fact, one of the things that really caught me is I looked at the top five restaurants in the United States. And one of them, number five, is Old Ebbett Grill in D.C. Oh, yeah. It made 30 Two million dollars last year. That's insanity. The average check is thirty nine dollars, and meals served last year were one million. Carmine's in New York made thirty three million dollars. Tao Restaurant in New York also made thirty three million dollars. Joe's Stone Crab in Miami made thirty seven million dollars, and the Top Hotel restaurant is at the Venetian Hotel. 
also a Thai restaurant, and they made $42 million last year. So what are people crying about? Sounds like we're doing great, huh? Yeah. Well, you know, that Tao Group, um, they are pretty impressive. They've got about 33, I think, major venues around the world. And um, not that we're here to promote any specific place, but my goodness, it's it's incredible. But they've got huge amounts of money behind them. And they are enormous properties that can house a lot of people. And they have wowed the industry with the fact that they, beyond anybody, have a 50% income from alcohol sales, which is way above the average restaurant. I think it's 20%. That's right. 20% so for, for really for amazing. Bar. And even somebody like Tao, you know, they, one of their properties, Stanton Station, been open in New York City uh, for 15 years was a huge stepping stone for a lot of cool people and a lot of interesting, you know, celebs. Amy Schumer started there working as a server, et cetera. Um, and they closed. They couldn't renegotiate a lease. So you just never know. A lease ends, and if the landlord decides you're making all this bank and they want a you know, bigger piece of it, you know, and you can't make a lease happen, there's one good reason to have to close, and it's terrible. And I think that it sounded good to talk about those fake folks that are making all of that money. But <laughs> the reality folks. is that uh, 59% of restaurants fail in three years. That's 26% the first year, 19% the second year, 14% the third year. And even 70% of those that make it past the first year close in the next three to five years. 90% of restaurants that are still operating past the five-year mark may stay in business and may be in business for a while. But even a part of that is interesting because what happens is the restaurants that survive are chain-owned restaurants and the freestanding restaurants are the ones that are going down. Yeah, I think these days... Um, you know, you hear about real estate prices are so skyrocketed and overinflated, and it's very difficult for the average person who doesn't have a huge amount of money in their pockets to to open a place. You know, between the startup costs and um, what's going to become all of your fixed costs and variable costs, just having that real estate is just nuts to try to open a place. And you know, you look at some of the places that. If you walk into a space that maybe was formerly, for instance, actually a really good buddy of mine, uh, Susan, who owns Susie Cakes, um, very famous bakery up in L.A., and she started with a place that was a bike shop in Brentwood. It was a brilliant location, but they had to put in everything to get up to code for restaurant. So the amount of investment for a 1,200-square-foot place was shocking, and thank God it worked for them, but that's not the norm. And I think that when we talk about chains versus standalones, it's important because there are probably a million restaurants in this country. In fact, there are, there are a million plus restaurants in this country. But the number of independent restaurants just in 2018 declined by 11,000 establishments, while restaurant chains increased by 982 establishments. That's that whole thing again about having the bank, having the money, having one HR company, having one company doing the marketing. All of those are very important factors, and that's why we have so much of, of this disruption in the industry. Well, I think I think what we're also we're finding in San Diego, at least um, I'm sure you've seen it too, is whether it's chain or restaurant group, 
um, like we were saying with the Tao group, you know, you're talking about not an individual, you're talking about a group of individuals and, and lots of investors and they can, um, they help each other. And I, I've seen it working even with, uh, some of the smaller conglomerates. They may be a chef from one restaurant is getting together with a bartender from another place and a brewer and they're opening a brew pub, three of them as partners and they're going out for investors. Um, but again, it's, it's the cost to get things started is beyond what the average person ever understands. And we keep talking about cost to get things started. And to do a minimal restaurant, researchers say if you're just going in, you don't have to renovate, you don't have to do anything else, you have to have a minimum of $30,000 to even begin to talk about opening up a restaurant. And I think that one of the issues as we talk about restaurant failure is low startup capital. Mm -hmm. If you come into this business and you have to make money your first day, you're not going to be in business very long. Well, you have to have already been spending money on marketing, unless you are a wizard at social media these days, which this does does work to some degree. But you better be super popular if you want people walking in your door. And but one, that $35,000 or $30,000, where's that coming from? I, everybody I ever spoke to about opening up a kitchen, we found starting from scratch, but maybe you're talking about walking into something that's already going and you can just walk in not to pay them. And it was just a, a dead duck, but quarter million dollars just for the kitchen. No front of house. They're nope. saying, and this is from the NPD group, which is a restaurant and, and yeah. marketing research group. They said, bare bones, if you're going in, you're going to have to have $30,000. Yeah. Naturally, that's not counting some of the things that we're going to talk about here for your startup capital. Because they say that when you open a restaurant, you should be prepared to live for a year. Right. right. Six months of rent. Mm -hmm. Plus, you need to be able to pay your staff. And you need to be able to cover two inventory orders, full, full orders for your food, beverage, etc. It's a lot of loot. Right. And then you're trying to compete with the people like, you know, um, Consortium Holdings, amazing, here in San Diego, open up restaurant after restaurant, and you got the $10 million restaurants popping up, and you're trying to compete against them? And so that, so that startup capital is a problem, and you mentioned competition. Poor knowledge of the competition is, is an issue. Right. You have to know who you're competing against, right. and can you do better? We were talking earlier about how people... Everybody I know, whether they're in this business or not, somehow wants to be able to open a restaurant or a bar or a brewery because they've got a great restaurant or they think it's going to be fun or they've got a great recipe. It's my dream. It's my dream. <laughs> and that dream means that you have to know about your competition. Right. Because as I said, if you make hamburgers and I make hamburgers, Mm -hmm. If my hamburgers aren't any better than yours, then maybe I shouldn't think about going into business. Well, you could just be the Burger King and you just open up down the street from McDonald's. Could be. <laughs> um, so, And when you talk about that, that's another issue, location. Yeah. Yeah. Wrong location is the number one reason that many restaurants go out of business. They don't think about foot traffic. They don't think about parking. They don't think about... If they are next, there was a great sandwich shop right here in um, San Diego that uh, opened up next to a subway. I wondered why would you open the sandwich shop mm -hmm. next to a subway? The subway's still there. The sandwich shop is gone. Yeah. Location, location, location. Consistency. If you can't be consistent, 
in which, in, you know, if I come in and have a great meal at your place and I come back and order the same thing next time and it doesn't taste the same or it isn't as great, that inconsistency is a problem. Well, you know, that's um, in talking to chefs and we've got one coming in next time we taught. Um, it, it's when you have a chef that leaves, if the chef was the one that was 100 percent involved in in the menu creation and the and the food and preparation and you don't have uh, an owner who's standardized things. As soon as that, if that chef decides to leave, you're not going to have consistency because the next person to step in doesn't really know what their little tricks and tips were. You know, you've got to have, you got to have standardized recipes. You got to have everyone understand in that kitchen what the plate presentation's supposed to be, the the weights and measures of everything on that plate, the the textures, the just everything involved. There's a whole thing, and, and we'll hear about that more. You said we've got a chef that's been doing this for many years coming in to talk in our next segment, and we're going to talk about SOPs, Standard Operating Procedures. Mm. If you don't have those, your restaurant can't function. And I think what happens is a lot of people have this passion for food or this idea about enjoying having a restaurant or a food operation and don't realize it's a business. Right. And I think even more importantly, restaurants, even though we talked a little bit ago about million dollar restaurants, restaurants are not a dollar business. They're a penny business. You only survive. <laughs> it's by kind of pennies. a funny dichotomy, actually. It's true. <laughs> it's probably, but it's true, though. That's what that, most of them are making is mm-hmm. pennies. <laughs> that's true because what you get, once you've looked at your food cost and your operating cost and paying your labor and all those things that go in, you're down to the industry says it should be 10%, but with high rents and with labor costs, people are making 2 to 6%. So every penny counts. We'll talk about waste, you know, the amount of waste that restaurants um, go through is another problem, you know, and we don't count, we don't think about that shrimp you waste on every salad or the way your person cuts up your bell peppers so you're throwing away a third of it. Oh, we hear it constantly. We sell, we Mm -hmm. sell cakes to hotels and I know for a long time they wanted us to sell them whole cakes, but they wanted them all pre-sliced because they didn't trust their staff to slice. And I thought, how do you have people working for you? You don't trust them how to cut a cake. But, you know, if everyone's going to cut it differently and oops, maybe there's just a little piece that fell off and I could eat that. I think there's all sorts of reasons why it's a legitimate concern. So we just started doing individual desserts because pre-cutting is, to me, already wasteful because now you've, you know, you've ruined the the integrity of the cake by cutting, but that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother <laughs> ball it of is. wax. <laughs> but it, it's, it's all about the standard operating procedures though. Cause if you have weights and measurements and ways that things are done, then that make that makes a major difference. Another issue that we talked about and looked at are bad partner relationships or bad owner relationships. You've mm-hmm. got to have an owner that under, either understands the business or understands that he or she has to bring in someone with experience that understands the business. Right. You mean they can't just be people that like to party? <laughs> well, I, as I said, I, I, I know we've got some stories coming about that, and, and that is interesting. <laughs> people think that their restaurant is just there for them to be able to hang out with their friends, and that can be a disa- have disastrous results. We used to laugh about it. The restaurant 
owner that would come in and just think it was a free dinner. And I just think, my God, there's nothing free about it. You crazy? Everything you just ate is coming straight out of your pocket. And all the people that just served you, it's coming straight out of your pocket. And the fact that you didn't just sell that table to people who were actually paying is also coming out of your pocket. And a lot of restaurant owners don't realize that. They look at it as a secondary place to entertain their buddies. And so that's owner and also partner. You've got to pick a partner who understands their role and understands your role. And you all are able to work together on that. Yeah, well, I got very lucky. I've actually had quite a few business partners over the course of my industry career. I used to own restaurants, but I have to say, um, but for sure, the the best real partner I ever had was was Donna, who um, just had to just decided to leave San Diego, sadly. So I just bought her out. And as much as it's sad, we're we're still great friends. And I honestly could never have imagined working with somebody so loyal and trustworthy and hardworking and just a just a tremendous human being all around. And I know when um, when we became partners, things she said to me was she hadn't really ever expected to own something, but she said if she ever was going to have a partner, it would it would be me. And I was very flattered by that. And I felt the exact about her. And I don't. And everyone keeps asking me, "Are you going to get another uh, another partner for the bakery?" And I was like, ah, "No way. <laughs> you can't. You can't compare. You can't find someone who's going to replace that kind of a human. Too difficult." So partners are something you have to worry about. Owners is something you have to worry about, and employees are something you have to worry about. Oh, yeah, they're your team. Right. You have to sometimes. You know, one of the one of the old saws in this industry. Even though there are a lot of family-owned businesses, is that you need to think very hard before you hire relatives or friends to work yeah. for you, because yeah. then you may have a problem. And then another thing, and I'm not talking about relatives or friends now necessarily, but people are going to steal. Yeah, and that's just a, the the nature of, of human beings. People are going to be wasteful. People are going to give away free drinks. The average bar loses 20% in free drinks, spilled drinks, and a, a myriad of other things that go on, all because they don't have the standard operating procedures and you haven't checked your staff and worked with them. And don't forget, a lot of those spilled drinks are rung in as spilled drinks, but they ain't no spilled drinks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And, and and the thing about that also is you can lose four thousand to ten thousand dollars a month off your bar and not even know it. Right. Never even realize that that money is coming in or going through. And the other part of this being a business is you've got to think about things like accounting, like your accounting, your payroll, and oh my goodness, that thing called food cost. Oh, I've talked boy. to people that go into this business. And don't even understand food costs. They yeah. think, well, I'm just going to charge, you know, what I think works. Well, you know, no, you got to you got to know what it costs you. Right. You have to know what it's going to cost to be able to maintain it. You got to know what your competition is charging because you may have a great cost set up that works for you, and down the street they're selling that burger for twenty cents less. Right. You're out of luck. You know, it's funny having, I've been in this business for a very long time now. And even having had the, the bakery for, let's see, it was probably at our nine and a half year mark, nine year mark. And, um, there were still things that we were charging for that we were actually losing money on. And, you know, we, we were so excited. I remember at one time we got, um, 
we got a very high profile hotel up North County uh, wanted to work with us and they wanted to buy these little cakes. And so they basically wanted a, an amenity for their guests. Super neat idea. Love it. But it was about a 45 minute drive to get these things up there. They wanted um, 12 only every week and they wanted their logo on them. And we were making not only not enough money on each on each cake if you didn't have to do the drive, but basically and we brought in a consultant, um, thank God to Andy at Infix, my God. And he said, he said, what you're doing, Elaine, is you are giving away this cake. And oh, by the way, why don't you take a hundred dollars too? <laughs> we were, it was so ridiculous how much money we were losing. He said, literally as of tomorrow, you are no longer selling these cakes to them. And that was pretty much it. It lasted for, I think, two months. We sold to them and we said, oops. <laughs> Sorry, had to cut our losses and said we apologize, but this is not working for us. And that's something you've got to do. Maybe you are the greatest pasta maker in the universe. But if you don't know business, if you don't understand food cost, if you don't understand the competition, it doesn't matter how well you cook. You've got to have, that's where partners come in or owners. Somebody's got to be watching that bottom line and deciding exactly what's going to go on there. Yeah. Lots of checks and balances. And I think that's another thing that when you have, um, you know, whether it's either absentee owners or you put too much on one person to handle, there's nobody else to do checks and balances. And it's just too easy for things to either fall by the wayside or kind of get brushed under the rug. Yeah, it's a quick way downhill. Yeah, And we've been talking in general terms, but here in San Diego, um, it's a revolving door, especially in, 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 in places like the gas lamp, but also in North Park and Little Italy and, yeah. and all the restaurant centers and hubs that we have here. It used to be that a restaurant would come in, they'd be there for a couple of years, and maybe they might go in or out. You know, it would, you'd have to see what would happen. Now I see restaurants coming in for six months, six months, and they are gone. And the amazing thing is, within another month, somebody else is in there, yeah, and they may be amazing. gone in six months. Yeah, I know. They're those really strange, kind of like black hole spaces that just revolving doors of anyone thinking they're going to be better than the next guy. And I, I think there's something too seeing a space that was, at, or that at least, you know, you know, they're going to close. I mean, there are places that we see open and we go, Oh geez, how long is that one going to last? And you think, well, it's just another opportunity for the next person to come in and not have to do the build out. But that being said, there's still so much else that it costs to do that they, they just think it's going to be super easy because here's this going concern. They walk in, it's got all of, furniture fixtures and equipment, the FF&E, and um, they can just come in and just start and open their doors. And it just isn't, that just isn't the and reality. And something ought to make you ask when you see that, why'd they close? Right. There is a spot in Hillcrest, and it looks like it ought to be restaurant heaven. It's, you know, the it looks like there ought to be foot traffic, because there is, and but there is no parking it's jammed into a corner, and I am serious. There have been 10 restaurants in that one site in the past 12 years. It's crazy. At some point, somebody ought to say, this site doesn't work for a restaurant. Or, you know what, that's when sometimes the big restaurant groups come in and they can make something work. And that's always been amazing. 
there's actually a spot in Little Italy that was kind of revolving door. It just kept sitting vacant. They would put a ton of money in, try to do something new, um, fail, sit vacant, and now it's doing great. It's uh, it's cloak and pedal, and it's become kind of like attracting the you know the young crowd. It's it's a totally new hip feeling. There's zero parking in Little Italy, but everyone's Ubering in and out and walking and. It's kind of a cool, it's cool to see that happen too. Yeah, it is. So it's not doom and gloom. And next time we talk, we're going to talk to a chef that has been through a great deal of this and can tell us about it. And we're also going to look at some of the up and coming restaurants of 2019 that we'll all be looking for. And we'll talk more about that on the front burner. I'm Don Williamson. I'm Elaine Artitoni. The Specialty Produce app is the world's number one handheld resource on produce. The app features photographs, recipes, geography and history, taste and culinary applications on over 1,900 produce items. From apples to zapote, we've got your produce questions answered. Our app is available for both iPhone and Android. Download our app for free today.